I have here Michael Van Avery, honored guest. Welcome. For 15 years, Michael Van Avery has been the president of Republic Urban Properties, RUP for short, one of the largest commercial real estate developers in Silicon Valley. It's also the Bay Area flagship of the Republic family of companies known for developing institutional quality real estate throughout the United States. Michael works with federal, state, and local governments on the creation and development of smart growth projects, such as master planned communities, near transportation hubs, urban mixed use projects near major employment centers, and innovative public-private partnerships. In his 25 years of representing major institutional and private real estate developers in the greater San Francisco Bay Area, Michael has led complicated projects from land acquisition to completion. Under his leadership, RUP has gained national attention for its transit-oriented development projects at key transit stations, working as the premier public-private partner with many transit authorities across California. Michael has been involved with the planning, financing, construction, and delivery of 1,238 multifamily units and 145,000 square feet of mixed-use commercial space, 380 hotel rooms, 151,000 square feet of office, and 120,000 square feet of retail in various stages of development at 1.5 billion in value. He's a third generation San Jose native. Michael is an active member of the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. Uh, very shortly about myself, I'm the president and CEO of 10 Plus Brand Inc. It's a full service brand building, uh, content creation, and digital marketing agency. We are an award-winning agency in the San Francisco Bay Area. Okay, first question, Mike. Tell us about yourself, your personal stories, your family. Why do you do what you do? How did your journey end up here? And where is it going? Well, thank you, Joanne. And thank you for having me on this uh, wonderful podcast. I appreciate it. So as you mentioned in my bio, I'm a third generation San Jose resident. Uh, my family is uh, deeply rooted in the South Bay, specifically San Jose. And uh, they were immigrants uh, from Italy on my mom's side, uh, which is very, still a very prominent kind of uh, immigration here in, in the South Bay. And uh, with that, they were grocery clerks, they were grocery store owners, they were bakers. Um, and they arrived here in the early 1900s on my mom's side and uh, uh, owned small businesses, uh, very similar to many great immigrant groups in this uh, wonderful country we live in. Uh, my father's family came from uh, uh, really from the east in Nebraska. They were actually back uh, uh, residents of the United States back in its early infancy in the revolutionary days and migrated westward as uh, expansion and opportunity happened here in California. Um, my dad's side are iron workers and uh, house movers. And so the combination of those two families from my mom and dad's side had deep influence into my life. Uh, whether it's working at a working and owning a grocery store, uh, and you know that kind of blue collar route uh, that really drove me to 
respect how hard people work, but also as a younger man, seek educational opportunities. And it just so happened that the real estate industry uh, combines all of those facets. It, it combines a blue collar workforce uh, with a white collar direction, understanding how much money and time it takes to build things. As far as uh, where I'm at, um, I'm, I love my job as the managing partner here of Republic Urban Properties. And where we're going is a continued investment in the South Bay and the greater Bay Area. Uh, my family's rooted here. We're actually moving our corporate headquarters from downtown San Jose, where we're currently filming this podcast, into the Willow Glen Business District, where we'll construct a 15,000 foot building, $11 million, 8,000 square feet of, uh, for our offices, and then a 6,000 square foot uh, rooftop uh, restaurant, which I'm very proud of. So uh, where we're going is another 10, 15 years at least with Republic, depending on our pipeline. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're excited to continue to, to move through this great real estate industry. Wonderful. So what is the most important thing that you value? You know, I value integrity. Um, and I think to be a, a respected real estate professional, uh, a marketing professional, um, in the world of social media, where there's a lot of misinformation, I think the real estate industry has always uh, provided an opportunity that if you have integrity uh, mm -hmm. and you've de you, you develop what you promise and you deliver that to the community, to the financial markets, that gives you the integrity that, that people desire and also helps shape your brand. Yes, trust. Yes. Now, what are your biggest accomplishments and the biggest learning lessons slash failures? My, my, my most recent accomplishment that I'm very proud of and that is that we accomplished in 2019 is the Gateway at Millbrae Station project, um, which is uh, 400 units of housing, 150,000 feet of, uh, of office, 165 key Marriott residents in with mixed use of about 44,000 square feet of retail, roughly about a half billion dollars of construction costs, but one stabilized uh, probably $2 billion worth of valuations. It started in 2013 and it, 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 you know, it, it kicked off construction in 2019. Very long journey and a public private partnership but very, very satisfying because our partners there are Barrier Rapid Transit, BART, uh, and as, as well as the city of Millbrae. And, and I think that's something that we as a company are excited about that. Uh, it's, it's been a, a long endeavor, but it's, uh, it's very fruitful as it, as it finishes and, and uh, opens here in 2022. My failures, I would say that um, I try to minimize those, but nevertheless in real estate, you're always going to have uh, hopefully many successes, a few failures. Um, and, you know, that probably would go with some of our retail investment, um, especially we have a, a large project, which we love the location uh, off of the 580 and El Charo in Livermore called Republic Square. It's a wonderful, wonderful location, but because of the times, uh, retail, specifically restaurants, are very difficult to lease. So um, I'm not going to call it a failure. But it's been a challenge and so uh you know but again that's uh that's the boom bust nature of real estate right so COVID, how is it affecting commercial and residential real estate development office buildings retails hotels apartments housing projects public transit 
mixed-use projects, etc. How do you view the new remote work impacting new commercial office development? Yes, and that's an excellent question, Joanne. You know, remote work is a real catch-22 for the commercial real estate industry. Um, it is a hindrance for office. It is a hindrance for retail, especially new retail development. I mentioned Livermore. Um, and it's a hindrance for hotel. Um, and so I, I think uh, when we look back uh, 10 years from now, uh, all of us will probably say that we overreacted uh, to the pandemic. In other words, limiting uh, small business limits retail. It, it, it by nature shut down hundreds of thousands of square feet. It has uh, the remote work has affected how companies now view uh, their office buildings. Well, office buildings typically are located in downtown cores. Downtown cores are served by transit. Transit now is, is severely impacted uh, you know, through the, the pandemic. Now, some would argue that that's a good thing. We have less traffic. Um, however, we've invested billions upon billions of dollars of public money into barrier rapid transit, into the Valley transportation system, and, and, and into our, our freeways and infrastructure. And, and with, with the idea that commercial real estate, specifically office and retail, would locate in these downtown cores, and that would be joined by new transit development apartments, hotels, and other things to support convention centers, to support small business. And so the pandemic has absolutely taken a massive chunk out of the commercial real estate industry. Now, will it come back to full strength? I don't think it ever will, especially for retail. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I do think that there will be a rethinking of corporate campuses moving forward, that hybrid work systems will be more of the norm in the future. It remains to be seen what the demand for commercial real estate will be in the office, retail, and hotel asset classes. But clearly, COVID has had a severe effect. Right. So when you say downtown corridors, it's corridors, right? Downtown core. Core. C-O-R-E. So C-O-R-E. -E, uh, for example, downtown San Jose. Uh, I, you know, the core would be uh, around the convention center, the Fairmont Hotel. Uh, you would look at Union Square in San Francisco, or of course the business district there on California Street in San Francisco have been severely affected by COVID. Yes. Yeah, lots going to change. Now, will the future development of office space have habitational space associated with it? Sure. Um, I think mixed use of all types, um, office with hotel has, has, been, uh, has been done in major uh, cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles. Office and apartments uh, have, have uh, had you know, mixed use components as, as well. I, I would say yes, but I'd also say that the, the cost side of those uh, are very difficult to accomplish. And typically you see those in high rise developments. And I, I think that high rise developments uh, in the near term are, are a little cloudy uh, with, with construction costs and of course, who is going to be your office tenant? Um, I do think apartments as standalone will continue. To, your, to further illustrate your question, um, we will see potentially the uh, conversion of office into to habitat, into 
residential units. I do see that as a, as a possibility because uh, there are some large cities like New York, for example, uh, there's a number of projects being considered as, uh, you know, uh, tra transitioning from an office to a, a residential uh, property. And look, that might be a good strategy to tackle affordable housing. Um, yeah. If you have an existing structure and there is public money available, it yeah. might be the solution to house people at a cheaper cost than, than the, the millions and millions of dollars that it takes, hundreds of millions to build affordable housing. Yes, always a silver lining, given, you know, whatever the changes, you know, the pandemic uh, induced or not, so, because affordable housing has always been a really big problem for all major cities in the United States. Okay, number six, wildfires, climate change, California's water shortage. How are these three things impacting both commercial and residential real estate development? Mm -hmm. So natural disasters, and the ones you mentioned specifically, have a material effect on commodity pricing and labor. And, um, and specifically, the wildfires have been you know, devastating um, from, a, from a quality of life uh, you know, day to day. Uh, but it also a real effect when it, when it affects uh, properties and, and structures. When we saw the destruction that uh, past wildfires have done in places like uh, uh, Sonoma County and, and other places like that, um, it has is, it is drove in commodity pricing like wood and, and of course labor that goes with some of that commodity pricing has greatly affected the, the ability to, to have uh, you know, as, as affordable pricing as you can. So if you couple the, the natural disasters with the man-made disasters of the pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, it kind of creates a perfect storm for new construction. And at a recent conference uh, hosted by Marcus and Millishap, it's, uh, it's evident that you know, to, to build a new podium project, a wood frame, say four stories over a podium uh, structure, uh, we can't achieve the financing metrics uh, to make uh, a bank or an equity investor attracted into that deal. So these natural disasters just, again, contribute to the already man-made issues that we've created. Mm -hmm. And um, it's tough, and especially in California, Florida, and those other places that might be affected by, by hurricanes or tornadoes or flooding. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a serious issue, uh, and it all ties back to the cost of construction. Right. So the labor is in shortage. The materials are pr priced higher than before, and the supply chain is broken, and that makes the price goes even further. So uh, it's getting more and more costly to build commercial or residential, yet the demand for at least the residential housing is increasing because uh, more people are working remotely, so they want a comfortable place, an affordable place to live. Now, so that makes the real estate, uh, I mean, it's going to be always more in demand and less in supply. Um, sure. But places like Paradise or Lake Tahoe where the wildfires have burned, you know, so many acres and the houses are all burned. Do you think people will go back in the same place and build again? just to be burned again? I mean, are people choosing less hazardous places to build both residential and commercial uh, buildings? 
I don't think it's the choice. So I think given the choice of the, the consumer, um, they'll, they'll choose to go back to those locations. The question becomes that of how do you serve that consumer? For example, Pacific Gas and Electric, which sadly uh, it has been the, the reason for some of these fires. And, and again, I, I think PG&E is, uh, is doing the best job they can recently to, to stay on top of these natural disasters. But nevertheless, the question should be asked, uh, do we want to extend services in remote locations uh, to serve the demand of housing? And that, that maybe is not for me to answer. That's probably for our governors and our, our board of supervisors and our city councils. Uh, but also, uh, it's not just the services of power but can, is there water supply also in those locations that can also serve these residents? It is, it is an issue. And then of course, the last part of that is the cost. And in some cases, insurance agencies will not uh, fund or provide insurance, especially fire in these hazardous zones. So I, I do believe that, uh, again, this gets back to why we've had the strategy of building in our downtown cores and that we want to live in nodes and, and and villages that allow for you know, us to get out of the automobile where power is abundant and solar energy can be provided in a mass kind of uh, situation. So I, I do think that building remote uh, will become a, a less and less strategy to house people. But again, given the consumer, uh, anyone would say, I'd love to live in Lake Tahoe if I could afford it. Okay. So Number seven, Silicon Valley is full of world's largest monopolies, such as Google, Facebook, uh, you know. Google has been buying land in the Valley pretty aggressively. How has that impacted your business? Excellent question. Um, it has driven land costs up extraordinarily high. Um, if you go back to uh, the Trump administration when he took uh, the presidency and the Republicans took control of Congress, uh, you know, about six years ago, there was the repatriation of a lot of offshore money by the high tech companies. And we're talking billions and billions of dollars that would have otherwise went into an Irish bank offshore to be protected from, you know, capital gains taxes. And what happened was when that, uh, the, the deal occurred and, and people, uh, companies like Facebook, Google, Apple, and others uh, have been investing in the United States into uh, you know, properties, especially in the Bay Area in California. New York's a great example in Hudson Yards. And, and what has happened is that they've come in and they've created a lot of speculation with them in the case of San Jose. Uh, where you could buy land for, you know, maybe $40 a foot in the Midtown area of San Jose now sells for $150, $200 a foot in a matter of years. So the speculative nature that high tech uh, and their investment or commercial property has created, um, you know, it's not, it's not unusual. I mean, that, that's something that you want to see. You want to see investment and valuation created by these investments by high tech. But what it has done is it has, uh, you know, depending on what side of the aisle you're on, politically speaking, um, there is an issue of equity. Uh, and then there's an issue of, of who's going to, to move into these locations. And that's been a central debate in cities like San Jose, as Google has planned their campus. But in the case of San Jose and in the case of the Google investment, 
they have created a, a relatively good plan to address equity issues and to address the new development that will come in to benefit the entire city and most importantly, the economy in general in San Jose. Uh, but uh, it has the, the investment by high tech has absolutely affected um, almost every aspect of, of real estate development in the major metropolitan areas. Mm -hmm. Okay, what messages do you have for Silicon Valley giants like Google, Apple, Facebook, Cisco, Oracle, related to the current COVID remote working situations and related and related to all their other monopolistic powers, you know, more than COVID's return to work issues? Get back to work. Get your employees back to work. Um, we're running at in the high 70s of vaccinated people and mandate vaccinations uh, and, and try to restore faith uh, in, in the fact that, you know, we, we, we will never, COVID will always be here in one shape or form, but that we now have ways to deal with COVID. Uh, the first way is to get vaccinated. And I think that as you're seeing across the country, uh, mandates will likely be here to stay. And to your point, if you're in a, mono if you're a monopoly, and in, a, in this case, uh, some of these companies could be monopolies, I wouldn't go that far, but then you should mandate people to get back to work. I, I don't believe this remote work is a sustainable business plan, despite the employee, uh, you know, acknowledgement or influence that this is a better way for them to work. I do not believe that at all. And I think that ultimately that will be, it will be wrought with, with challenges of mm -hmm. production. I also think that um, it could be a, uh, as, as people work more from home, um, it, it will allow Silicon Valley to make deeper cuts potentially if there are layoffs. And I fear for those people that think that working from home is the panacea for the long term, because there's there's not enough uh, innovation is done when you are working with other people, mm -hmm. and it's not working over a virtual platform, which you and I are doing. I think this platform for a podcast or for a video cast or you know a meeting where you're you know you're not you're, you're spending time instead of traveling on a plane. You're going to spend time having this conversation and obviously there's a value there for for for, tra for travel dollars but from a day in and day out perspective yes i i just don't understand uh why we're not looking to get people back in their offices yes. that also will provide more jobs and support services um you know people forget that a lot of these large campuses have janitors they have uh you know cooks and employees that support the large companies like Facebook and Apple. And those people right now are trying to, they don't know if they're gonna have jobs, which means we could lose them out of the region forever. Mm -hmm. And we already have a problem finding people to do all sorts of, of you know, jobs that are not high tech, you know, $200,000 a year. So it creates more digital divide and more social equity issues. And yet Silicon Valley, is promoting a, a virtual workplace. So um, I've always had a problem with Silicon Valley also in that with the, a very few exceptions, they're not very generous individually. Um, you do not see large parks or 
you know, new theaters built after billionaires as they did in the turn of the century uh, when you had the Rockefellers and the Pritzkers and the others that built monuments uh, to cities, to people in these cities uh, to, to foster arts and education. A lot does happen and, and I'm probably generalizing it, but I'd like to see some of these high net worth folks that make zillions in the stock market turn around and say, you know what, I'm gonna help this school district. I'm gonna build this art center. I'm gonna fix this community issue here. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very spread out and it's very self-interested based upon their tax situation. So I, my message to Silicon Valley is stop being so cheap and invest in your communities. Excellent point. And internally, it's good for them because culture building, team building, you need to have in-person contact. And that's how we met. You know, we met at the Silicon Valley Chamber of Commerce event. It was in person. And then I, we chatted and we, I followed up. I cannot imagine meeting you solely virtually and would be interested in what you're doing. And you're absolutely right. Those monopolies, they have responsibilities to their communities. They have responsibilities to the economy. Okay, it's not just them, you know, uh, just whatever is best for their bottom line. Their bottom line is linked, is related to the, to the prosperity, to the vibrancy of the community. There is a whole community of supportive services. So they need to really have a sense of urgency. They need to play the leadership role, not just the bottom line, okay? And in the long term, the bottom line will be negatively affected if they keep this kind of a remote working model because people are social animals. They need interaction. They need, you know, innovation is a contact sport. You know, you, you gotta be in the contact of others to stimulate growth and have innovative ideas. Okay, so, so uh, that's their monopoly power. The better you put it to uh, the best use post pandemic as well, okay? Sure. Uh, number nine, with the deep roots in Silicon Valley for generations, what in your experience makes or breaks your deals in the Valley? I think the integrity that I mentioned prior and the, and the ability to, to demonstrate a, a, you know, a record of, of success um, and you know, it has to be the baseline for any good real estate developer. And, and we've got some really good ones here in, in the South Bay, as we do in the Bay Area. And so it's a, it's a very fierce competition uh, to get those prized properties. Um, and so someone like myself and Republic, um, I, I think that one of our advantages is because I am a third generation San Josean, uh, that I'm very um, comfortable with the politics and the, the neighborhood you know, matters that you have to work through. Those are just part of my job and that we, we work very hard in the community. Uh, we, you, know, you mentioned philanthropy in our last uh, conversation. You know, Republic Urban Properties is in the top 50 of philanthropic organizations in the entire Bay Area. And uh, we're ahead of companies like, believe it or not, Clorox, uh, which is a multi-billion dollar company. And so we use that philanthropic platform um, to make sure that we, we promote and practice what we preach and that you know, that we value education and children, uh, that we want solutions to house people of all types, um, that we wanna make sure that community-based organizations are successful 
and that they're, you know, that we're partnered with them in the right way that has something to do with profit. And I think that separates Republic urban properties from other people um, where you can say, well, hey, you did great on that project. You made millions of dollars. Congratulations. All the investors made a bunch of money. The question is, what do we do with that money? And, and where did it go? Did it go back to an organization outside of the Bay Area or even outside of the country? And the answer is no. Those, do those dollars continue to stay local and they continue to recirculate, not just for profit reasons, but also for nonprofit reasons that really go to my core values as a Catholic and as a Jesuit and that we need to teach and uh, we need to teach the children, uh, but we need to teach people how to be generous, not just with their money, but with their time and, mm -hmm. and of course, with other people. So I think that what separates Republic a little bit, at least I'd like to think so. Um, and, and again, that's not something that, you know, we, we try to promote, we try to make you understand by, by what we're doing. And so we hope people will follow our lead. You just uh, answered my last question. What does your brand stand for? That was an excellent answer. Okay. So I'm quoting you. Okay. You said, quote, the government is a hundred percent responsible for the housing shortage, unquote. Please explain why. Well, it's, it's like anything else. Um, it's regulated 100%. So in other words, I can't, uh, there are some cities like Houston that you can build anything you want, really, whenever you want, but that's not the case in California. And um, we're governed uh, by local jurisdictions. The state of California has helped us a little bit by, by accelerating state bills, which put requirements on local government to approve more housing, but make no mistake, um, the, the, in, in a lot of cases, even when you get a government approval, like a city council approval for a, an apartment complex, that could be sued and that could end up in the court system and you could lose the entire project. But yes, uh, real estate development uh, and, and the demand for housing is 120% impacted. I'll add another 20% to that 100 by, you know, uh, by local government. And it's why California has consistently, you know, under uh, approved new housing units. I mean, realistically, the state of California should do 200 to 300,000 housing units a year. We typically do a little over 100,000, uh, and depending on the economy, it could be less than that. And so that, that and yet we have 40 million people living here, uh, with many more that come in through migration, both uh, you know internationally and then of course nationally in addition to illegal immigration that happens in droves as well. So all of those contributing factors, and then you're relying upon a local city council to approve things, mm -hmm. and then how long it takes to get that approval. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, it's, uh, it's a, it, it just, in some regards, like the pandemic, it's a self-inflicted gun wound that we consistently shoot ourselves with and put ourselves behind in the production of housing. I think people are working hard more than ever our governor, our legislator. We have amazing housing advocates, so I don't wanna make it as an anti-government platform, but the numbers do uh, equal the lack of supply of housing, and that is a result of government. Yes. Now, we have a message for the California legislators. They need to be really um, tackle this issue of over-regulation and streamline the permit approval process and make it the state issue rather than just local municipalities issue. Um, it's a lot of talk. They are keenly aware of the housing shortage. 
you know, it's just get it done, you know, get it done. All right. So number 11, will the increase in warehouses due to the so-called Amazon effect permanently continue while the decrease in brick and mortar retail services last beyond the pandemic? So anecdotally, I, uh, I got tired of shopping online the other day and um, I decided I'd go uh, with my beautiful wife, Jennifer, and we went to Santana Row and to Westgate Shopping there at Valley Fair. I had a great time. I really miss being out and, and shopping at a, a storefront location and uh, enjoyed that experience immensely. And yet, and that made me to your question, it, it, it is becoming a, a, an endangered kind of uh, commercial asset. That is the brick and mortar, you know, small business retail. It's very difficult. And, and most of those places that I shopped at were all, you know, larger, uh, you know, well-funded, uh, in some cases, international brands. And so uh, it, it, there's no incentive to open up a hobby shop, uh, a toy store, um, and in some cases, even a grocery store now, you know, understanding that Amazon really fulfills, you know, an electronic, you know, good uh, kind of, you know, good or service and, and not so much a service, but any kind of goods that you're looking to purchase can be done within a second and a click. And so I don't think you're ever going to win that, that struggle against Amazon. I think what, what we need to do is, uh, is we need to continue to work with Amazon and these other in the Walmarts and others and, and really like they do with housing, mandate that they provide a certain amount of, of small business with their locations. For example, Amazon is now uh, starting to put more storefront operations in some of their industrial uh, warehousing. For example, uh, the boxes that you, you receive, they, they're now looking to encourage that you return those there and then they'll have some storefront shopping opportunities or you might say, hey, you know, I need to pick up this or that, and Amazon provides that location. And maybe Amazon allows a small minority-owned business to actually lease that space and run that operation for them. I think, I think if we start to get that kind of cooperation from these larger big box, instead of just consuming and swallowing up the small businesses, as an example, uh, my family used to own 10 grocery stores in uh, the greater San Jose metropolitan area. As the larger Safeways and others began to expand and the superstores, um, and then Walmart came into, into the area, my family's grocery stores could no longer compete. And they were slightly mismanaged in their own right through second generations. But nevertheless, that didn't help the macro strategy of the Amazons and Safeways and others and, and Walmarts that moved in. So I, I think that there, there's got to be a government should look to potentially regulate some of this, but it's difficult because in the free market system and when every city is chasing sales tax dollars to fund their general funds, uh, which, is, which repairs potholes, which funds the police and fire, when you have local government chasing sales tax dollars, they don't really care. They just want more sales tax dollars. So the idea of an Amazon having a warehouse there and sales that might come out of that warehouse potentially, that's fine with them, um, the government, maybe the local government. So it's a, it's a real conundrum. And, and I'm, not sure that, um, I'm not sure that local government has the expertise to really govern uh, and, and, and create better opportunities for this. It might have to come out of the state someday. 
Um, but for now, it's a losing war if you're a small business. You're, you're lucky to be around and you're probably not gonna be around for the long term. Is that the same reason for the dying of malls, shopping malls? Same yeah. reason, because they are actually what's inside the shopping mall are all these mama papa, you know, brick and mortar stores. Wow, okay, yeah. 12. What are the challenges for realizing internal return on investment ROI for real estate investors? Yeah, great question. It's all about cost right now, Joanne. It's, um, uh, we want to achieve uh, on a commercial apartment, new development, uh, 250 units as an example, uh, over a, a podium project, say of two or three stories. You know, that, that project's probably going to cost $150 million on average. Okay. You want to get a return on cost of about five and a half percent, five, five and a half percent return on cost, which means your internal rate of return should be around 20, 25%. And, and that's difficult to do right now because we can only charge so much rent with, you know, construction costs continually rising. And, and that's where we're at right now. We're, we're at a, a standstill for new construction. I mean, you're seeing some construction here or there. A lot of that was probably done in 2019. Some of that's affordable housing. But as far as starting new apartment projects now in like San Jose, San Francisco, Oakland, Walnut Creek, the major cores with the cost of, of construction, it's, it's virtually impossible. And we're all sitting around now asking ourselves, when is this going to change? Well, we know this. We know that we can't push rents that much further, understanding that we have the highest rents in the nation, in some cases, the world. And so we keep looking to the fact that maybe we'll get a better deal on construction costs. Yet we have inflation. We have supply chain issues. We have labor you know, rate issues. So for now, we're again in that perfect storm of, of rents being capped, construction costs still rising, and we're not able to move to that next level. And that's what's, what, that, what that's doing now is it's ca causing companies like myself to look outside of the, of the nine county Bay Area and maybe in, in more uh, build for rent opportunities uh, in places like Fairfield or Sacramento. What I mean by build for rent is townhomes for rent, single family homes for rent. Uh, that seems to be where the industry is moving for the time being. But, but again, someone like myself would much rather be building in my hometown a mixed-use project that I could deliver, uh, and yet I'm not able to do that right now. And candidly, here we are in 2021, Q4. I do not see a pathway to do that in 2022. Mm -hmm. That is profoundly um, impacting the future of Silicon Valley because... Yeah. Uh, well, a couple of years ago, there was already a lot of uh, accidents from Silicon Valley. Uh, very good companies moving out of state to Utah, to Texas, you know, Nebraska. Well, uh, I don't see uh, any reversal of that trend based on what you just described. Okay. Now, imagine yourself as someone with money to invest in real estate. What would you invest in right now? industrial properties such as warehouses, residential townhouses, or duplexes, triplexes, quartplexes, or single family homes uh, for rent, land only? 
Wow. Um, if I were to invest personally, uh, I would look for, uh, you know, opportunities uh, in build for rent in some of these off-market locations uh, that I mentioned, Fairfield, Hollister, Salinas, Vacaville, the Sacramento areas, even, even Manteca and places like that. But I, I would look in areas that are supported by a very good infrastructure. Uh, I still like the train stations and there are train stations and in, in the Capitol Corridor, for example, is a, a good line that a lot of people can take to Sacramento and the Bay Area. Um, I, I, I do like those build for rent opportunities. I, I do think that industrial um, has, uh, especially existing industrial, if you can find a, a core location uh, like San Jose, for example, or um, you know, even parts of Santa Clara would be another great example, and you find a 50, 100,000 foot warehouse, uh, there will always be the need for those uses uh, inside the core. And those are excellent, excellent long-term investments for families uh, that maybe are looking to do a 1031 exchange, uh, maybe into that product. I, I also would say that there are some great shopping center locations uh, that, that while retail, you know, is still a little down, there are some great existing locations and, and services that you'll consistently need for the, from, from now to the end of time anchored by grocery stores and then the ancillary uses that would go with the grocery store anchor. Uh, I do think those are good, you know, infill opportunities. Last but not least, I am a believer still in apartment projects and um, of, of all types and, and making sure that you're working with the right developer like a Republic um, that maybe like, for example, we have a friends and family program um, and we do prefer to, you know, preferred interest versus ownership, which is more risky. Um, so if you look for, for like preferred interest into real estate projects, there are still seven to 12% uh, returns that you can achieve on your money on a yearly compounded basis uh, that are out there. Um, but, you know, um, real estate is, is still the best investment. I, I, I have a 1030, I have a, I, you know, I have a 401k. I have, I have some stock portfolio, but I look at it and say, oh God, I, I, I guess this works. And I guess the stock market's going to do its thing. Whereas with real estate, I can own it. I can control it. I can live it. And uh, it's just, it's just fun. And, and frankly, it's still the best return on investment once you find the right property. Yes. So you almost answered all of my next question. Just see if there's anything to add. Okay. Where would you advise commercial real estate investors to invest if all things being equal, Silicon Valley or elsewhere? And why? Silicon Valley is a great long-term investment. Um, you, you just can't go into commercial real estate thinking that you're going to get your money back, you know, right away. So anyone that wants to be in commercial real estate better understand this. Um, it takes a while. Um, and so I, I, I always marvel at some of the people that want to get into our industry and how did you get where you're at and how do I make, you know, how do I get there and make that kind of money? Well, guess what? Um, any investment that you do with me is a five-year business plan and it might be longer depending on the tax ramifications of the investors. And so, you know, I think if you're committed to a long-term investment, if you like where, you know, jobs and great weather is, then Silicon Valley is where you should be, but you better bring your, your wallet and your dad's wallet and everybody else with you because it's not going to be inexpensive. And that, 
that's unfortunate because you know we would like to get more people in to this great region, but it, it tends to be the high net worth people uh, that invest in Silicon Valley. I will say this, you know, there's been a lot of these opportunity zones that have come up. I'm not a huge believer in some of that opportunity zone investment, so be careful. Uh, it might be a way to dodge your tax capital gain issue, but that's uh, if, if you're if you're going just to dodge your capital gains, great. That's that's wonderful. Just never expect that money back because that's the thing about commercial real estate. Um, unless you're in control of it, and you know you you are the person that are making calling the shots, there's no guarantee you'll ever get that money back. Okay. Now read the fine print. Yes, always. Yeah. Is AI, smart cities, smart projects, and sustainability technology changing the way the buildings are built? And I have two folds of this question. Yeah. It's like now people build a residential single family home, they expect uh, uh, like using Alexa's uh, Siri, you know, to voice control everything. And the other aspect of this, with the technology lower your cost for building because right now you are in a, a big hole of this labor you know shortage and the supply chain broken and also the you know the uh, materials uh, are getting more expensive mm -hmm, mm -hmm. certainly technology um whether you want to classify it as artificial intelligence or you know uh pre we're, we're seeing that now with prefab technology. So anything that's built off-site, trucked, shipped, railed in, unloaded, and then man constructs. And um, I don't know if that will change too much on the back end, which means, you know, the carpenter and the, you know, the electrician. I don't see a lot of, a lot of new AI technology or, or machine technology that will replace that skilled labor, at least in the, in the real estate construction industry. What I do see, however, on the front end, and I mentioned the prefab, and for example, at the gateway at Millbrae Station, uh, we're, we're putting together a, a system called a light gauge framing system called Prescient. It's uh, constructed, uh, it's, it's actually a software, so we work with the software designers to essentially fit together the framing aspects of uh, light gauge metal construction as the frame. And all of that is uh, uh, you know, manufactured in a warehouse in Colorado uh, and it's all put together and, and it's been shipped by truck or trucked from Colorado over the Rockies, over the Sierras, here to the Bay Area. And then it's put together on site using a, uh, a QR code uh, that scans and that event basically comes together like an erector set, like you would put together an erector set as a child. And that all has been from the innovation of prefab technology. So like I said, I think on the front end, we're continuing to see some great innovation with AI software and lots of great innovation. You're also seeing that with prefab where things are being built like uh, full bathrooms now are being built off-site, truck, ship, railed over, craned in, and assembled on-site by, by manned labor. Um, on the back end, I'm not seeing much innovation uh, uh, beyond just good, skilled people. But on the front end, certainly, uh, we will continue to see more innovation. Right. Innovation is always going to solve the 
uh, whatever the crisis and issues. Okay, so um, I'm curious about what do you what do you know or what do you think about the one quote unquote in LA. You, you heard of the one? That's the no, one. I have not. Oh, it's the most expensive residential house ever built. Huh. Hundreds of millions of dollars, and now nobody wants to buy it. Nobody. I mean, it's over the top access, and uh, well, never mind. You, you, it, it, it was talked Pavilon about. Pavilon must buy it. Who? Pavilon must buy it. <laughs> he sold his houses. He doesn't want to own any earthly belongings. That's right. I know. I know. So let's move to the next one. Uh, okay. How do you think the Biden administration's infrastructure spending can help with real estate development? Well, you know, you mentioned the question earlier about helping out uh, through natural disasters. And I think bottom line is this, let's create more reservoirs um, and, and, and let's, let's create more, you know, supply for, for human beings. Um, and water chiefly comes up as the number one thing here in California. As far as um, what else will happen with that spending plan, I, I am... And look, I'm I'm a I'm a centrist, and so I don't have a lot of I don't lot of have a, a lot of patience for the left, and I don't have a lot of patience for the right. I'm right down the middle, and so in some cases I'm misrepresented by both of them. I don't like all of these spending plans as much because one of the problems that we have is we we we're spending a lot, and we're not necessarily telling us who's going to repay that spending. Um, and so what happens with those spending plans is they become a platform for other issues. And that's unfortunately what's happening with this spending plan. By its definition, it could be an amazing thing in that if that money got to the, a water district to build a new reservoir, if that money got to a transit you know, agency to, to expand transit ridership or a local government to help out on its fair share of building new roadways and other infrastructure. If it works like that, then I'll be extremely happy. Um, but as of yet, it, it seems to continue to change and it, it confuses me and I'm pretty sophisticated. Uh, and so my hope is that uh, we just land on something that will benefit, uh, if anything, a better water supply in California. Right. You did mention the word cheap water. Uh, did you say cheap the word water cheap? supplies? Yeah. So we so a supply of water that's not going to cost, you know, ratepayers double of what they're paying today. Um, and so we need, you know, sustainable uh, water supplies that, that are, is affordable uh, for its consumers. Okay, so what can the federal government do to ease the labor shortage? Well, we could fix immigration or define immigration. We are a nation that relies on immigration to service our, our great industries. And uh, you don't have to go any farther than Japan to see uh, an immigration problem. And their economy has been stagnant for a generation now. And so, you know, we are, we are a nation of immigrants and uh, we have to embrace that and we have to have compassionate towards that. And we have to have pragmatism so we can have a, a highly skilled workforce uh, of all levels, not just at the, the highest uh, professor level, but also the people that are going to staff our assembly lines, that are gonna pick our produce, and that are gonna basically work in our, in our industries, because we don't have high enough birth rates 
in the United States of America. We need to have more children. So any of you that are 25 and uh, 35 have children mm -hmm. uh, because uh, if, if we have children or, or work hard mm -hmm. uh, in a productive way to, to challenge your elected leaders to make sure that we have a good immigration policy. Uh, I'm not talking about letting everybody run the borders and run in. I'm talking about you know doing what we do here and, and making sure that America still has a great immigration policy for everyone to have a fair share to come here, but to work here, not to get a handout. Yes, yes, absolutely, I agree with that. What do you want the state and local governments to do now and after the pandemic for the real estate market and the economy? Great question. Uh, locally, get out of the way and uh, let us build things and stop, you know, there's a crane fee, a crane, C-R-A-N-E, you know, crane fee in the city. They're, they're actually proposing a crane fee. For what? And, and, For using of crane? In, in San Jose, in San Jose. And, I, and I'm, I'm losing my mind because we're, try, we're trying to say, wait a minute. And they want to do that because the airport, they want to create more user fees for the airport. It, it's insane. It's insane. So on the local level, stop it. Stop the madness. Okay. Get out of it. Also on the local level, stop creating more mandates that are going to create things that are going to be more expensive. For example, the REACH code is a, another Berkeley, San Jose, San Francisco. Uh, it's, it's, in other words, no more natural gas for, for houses, only electric, all electric. Because in theory, uh, that will eliminate uh, greenhouse gas emissions that are emitted by natural gas. That's absurd. That's absurd. That's creating more cost to housing. So all you're doing is exacerbating more costs and forcing more people not to be able to own or rent. Craziness. Local government, stop it. Get out of the way. State government, I think, uh, in, at least in my lifetime, this is an, a, 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 a unbelievable. Uh, you've got incredible leaders like Scott Weiner, Senator Scott Weiner, mm -hmm. uh, David Chu, mm -hmm. and Gavin Newsom and others uh, who continually lead the charge to make local government stop mm -hmm. so they can you know, continue to build housing because they see the, the, the statewide uh, you know, impact that it's creating on the economy. And so uh, continue what you're doing, state government, because you're doing a better job than you've ever done before. Absolutely, yes. Now, last question. What does your brand stand for? I ask this you know, as a branding expert, I build business uh, brands and personal brands. So first, your business brand. What does your business brand stand for? And then if any different as a personal brand, then, you know, elaborate on that. Well, the, the personal brand would be about, you know, um, being from the South Bay and, and, and creating product in the South Bay that makes you recognize Republic Urban Properties. So in other words, you know, you, you built up that transit station, you created that, recreated that corner that has a nice restaurant in it now. So someone that does mixed use well uh, and that understands mixed use and not afraid of it and that can create something that, that uh, is a benefit from a lifestyle perspective, but also from a tax perspective. So, you know, again, our, our trademark is uh, we build landmarks. And, and I think that's a little, you know, a little corny or, or, or old and cliche, but I think I think it remains true if you, you know, translate it back to our brand, which is you know building mixed use and and building it well and and you know reshaping, you know, uh, a neighborhood.
Bye. Sorry about that. Um, okay. So you know what I really miss, and uh, I hate to see them disappearing. Are these mama papa local colors, local taste, local elements of uh, that really adds to the diversity of a culture of a city. I mean, you go to Europe, they still have those old stores, some of them more than 100 years old. And here we see are all these uh, franchise chains, Taco Bell, and even Barnes and Noble that where I took my little boys, now they're all grown ups, you know, <clears throat> for just go to the local Barnes and Noble. Now that's completely vanished. Uh, it'll be a very sad way of living that you only have Amazon and Walmart and Safeway. And, and it's just like, what do yeah. you think? What do you think? Of yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And that's why we as, uh, you know, as, as property owners need to foster mom and pop and small business. For example, Republic will spend a lot of dollars on, on tenant improvements to make sure that that mom and pop can spend its, you know, its money maybe on, you know, the other startup operation ventures. And so all you can do is, is create spaces and opportunities for small business mm -hmm. and, and hope that, you know, you've got the right location for them to foster, you know, to, to grow and foster their businesses. Right. And they will grow much better if they build a brand first. And that's, right. that's what we help them and serve uh, uh, their growth. Well, thank you so much. Exactly one hour. Uh, really appreciate, appreciate it very much. Uh, I will have this made into a podcast, video, and uh, transcript. Uh, edited, slightly edited. So we will get it out. You get it out. I get it out. And hopefully uh, the Silicon Valley monopolies and the state and local governments will hear your message loud and clear. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joanne. Really I appreciate it. it. Thank you for the opportunity. You're wonderful. Sure. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.